from GreenBiz Group. Welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here at Le Bourget outside of Paris, scene of the COP21 climate negotiations. On this week's episode, various perspectives of the Paris Climate Summit. We'll talk with Facebook's sustainability guru about what COP means for the future of clean energy. We'll talk about the conversation at COP about carbon markets and stranded assets. And we'll catch up with the rest of our Green Biz team here in Paris to compare notes. We're calling the cops this week on 350. So here it's the final stretch of a two-week uh, COP21 event. We've been here for the past uh, week. Uh, I'm here with senior editor Lauren Hepler. Lauren, I don't even know where to begin. Bonjour. Yes, it's a little crazy. I'm a little sleep-deprived, but it's been great. Um, I mean, we, it's just been event, event, uh, business, NGOs, activists, all kinds of stuff. And lots of food. Well, so just to give an example, I mean, I got in and went to, uh, as soon as I landed, pretty much went to an event at Google Paris headquarters. Next day was the World Climate Summit, where I, I moderated a session. Uh, went to a reception of C2ES, which is uh, formerly the Pew Center. There was the Sustainia Awards. Um, on Monday, we were at the World Business Council for Sustainable Development conference. I was on stage a bunch of the day, kind of co-hosting, doing a lot of the interviews. On Tuesday, we went to the Sustainable Innovation Forum. We did a bunch of interviews there. I was at a climate WWF Climate Savers Dinner uh, that evening. On Wednesday, we were at the uh, International New York Times Energy for Tomorrow event, star-studded. We saw Jerry Brown and Secretary of Energy Moniz and uh, uh, Tom Friedman interviewed John Kerry. And it just, uh, I mean, it's been like that. Um, we uh, uh, hung out uh, at a place called The Place to Be, where we hooked up with, uh, with our colleagues, Pete May and Sean Rappaport, uh, at a dinner, another Tom Friedman event at the Conservation International conversation. And uh, anyway, it's just uh, going on. Oh, and by the way, there's some climate negotiations taking place <laughs> here, too. Right, right. It's cool to be here. We're actually at Les Bourget, which is the site uh, just outside of Paris, where the, the talks are taking place. Like you were saying, really coming down to the wire now. We're in the home stretch. Um, but I definitely will say just out of the laundry list of things we've seen this week, uh, the John Kerry talk yesterday was really interesting. We'll get to it in a minute. But that's sort of this potential link between clean energy and national security, which I think is just a topic people are really starting to grasp. Um, but more than that, I think uh, it's been interesting to hear how businesses are thinking about the climate talks in general. Um, there's a lot of talk about carbon pricing and things that aren't necessarily probably going to be included in the formal text that comes out of the United Nations, but it, there are things that um, you would hope will continue to be discussed um, when everybody goes home. Yeah, I mean, that's why we were here is to look at the business lens and, uh, you know, people, the conversation has become much more mainstream around things like stranded assets, certainly, you know, getting to 100% renewables in a short period of time, a uh, lot more about carbon sequestration and, and what are some of the technologies. Uh, it's been uh, kind of gratifying that the, uh, that the conversation at, at, at COP is, uh, picks up a lot of the themes that we do at Verge Conference uh, around the role of technology and innovation. And, and, and how much of that is needed, how much more of that's needed, uh, smart and, and, and efficient everything and new business models. And so, 
Yeah, it's a, we're going to try in the course of this uh, podcast to give you a flavor of a number of the interviews that we did, a number of the speakers that we heard. And uh, it's not going to be, you know, really the microcosm. Uh, I mean, it is a microcosm. It's not really, uh, you're not going to get the flavor. But if, you, if you've if been on Green Biz this week and, and in the coming days, even you'll see uh, slideshows and articles and videos and uh, a lot of the interviews that we've done at some of these events. So it's a big story to tell. Let's get into it. All right, well, this isn't an easy task, but I think to start off, let's just sort of try to sum up what has happened this week. Um, obviously, the the reason we're here and why everyone else is here, about 40,000 people I heard, um, is the UN climate talks that are going on. And while it is an incredibly bureaucratic and wonky process, there are a few really crucial things that businesses in particular are very attuned to. One of them is the obviously the emissions goals that companies are setting those are called INDCs international targets blah 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 Um, but INDC is the acronym to remember and that's like the U.S. looking at cutting their emissions 25 to 28 percent in the next 10 or so years Um, so we're seeing uh, how strong the agreement if there is an agreement is going to be worded like really how you can stick to this um and then beyond that there's the overarching goal of whether we're gonna shoot for two degree average temperature rise in the next century or if the maybe the negotiators are going to try to be a little more ambitious listen to some of the especially the vulnerable developing countries that have been going with the slogan 1.5 to stay alive that's to stave off things like sea level rise Um, So there's a lot of stuff going on. And one of the other big areas that we've heard a lot about at the business events is to sort of how are we going to keep governments accountable? And that's this concept of a ratchet mechanism and making all the negotiators come back to the table, hopefully every five years. That's what they're really pushing for. Um, So these are all things we're waiting to see, but obviously big potential implications for things like clean energy and the overall landscape of how you plan for a low carbon economy. The INDC stands for Intended Nationally Determined Contributions. I don't know why that doesn't <laughs> just roll off your tongue, Lauren. Blah, blah, blah. Yeah, yeah. I and intended. And this is interesting that also I think this is a significant thing in that name that this is intended nationally determined contributions. What are these countries intending to do? And that's the big difference here at COP21 then in, in Copenhagen at COP15 six years ago, where they were trying to come up with a one size fits all mandate for all countries. This is uh, bottom up. This is what let each country determine what it is wants to commit to and what it's able to commit to. And what's interesting about this um, is that this is very much what uh, the George W. Bush administration proposed about, uh, I don't know how many years ago it was in Bali, um, that, uh, and I spent some time with Andy Karsner, who's here in, in Paris. He was the uh, Assistant Secretary uh, of Energy for Renewables and Efficiency uh, under George W. Bush. And, and, and I have to say, one of the good guys, uh, <laughs> one of the, just a character in, in, his, in his own right, but, but just brilliant and visionary and um, and 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 a, a voice of reason, and, and certainly uh, now working for Google, right? Now, no, spending some time with Google X and, and a number of other projects, but certainly uh, among uh, the uh, people on the right side of the political aisle, a, a voice of moderation and reason and sanity. Um, but he was reminding me that that what's coming out of COP is 
uh, assuming it, it all gets uh, uh, negotiated and agreed to, is very much. He said, "This is what we agreed. You know, we looked at a, a while back in Bali, and and um, it's low. It's less than what we've what we were trying to do in Copenhagen. But he said, if we had just done that at the time, we would have saved a, a decade. So I, I mean, I'm not trying to push an agenda here, but I just think that this is a, it's sort of a back to the future kind of approach." Right. And with that in mind, I think it is important to clarify that obviously climate change has accelerated in the time that has been squandered between then and now. So that really is making people question, is this approach the way to go? Sort of letting people have these voluntary targets because it's really all about sticking to those targets if you're going to set them. Um, But beyond that, we did get a really interesting perspective on sort of how COP has evolved from a person who is actually very well acquainted with Copenhagen and Denmark. (laughs) Right. I spoke with uh, Ida Aken, who is a former uh, minister of the environment for uh, the Danish government and is now uh, a a member of the Danish parliament. Um, And uh, here's what she had to say about uh, comparing uh, Copenhagen and Paris. Is there a sense that the business community is more welcomed or more engaged or their voices are being heard more than uh, six years ago? Definitely. I mean, COP15 was important in the sense that it woke up businesses to this agenda and they really felt they had to do something about it. But it was just incremental. It was the beginning. It was sort of a new agenda. Now it's deeply embedded in a lot of businesses. And and you really, if you're a serious business, you take this into account as something that you have to work with. So I see this as a a complete game changer. And and this is also why we're not longer talking only about sharing burdens, which was COP15 was like, you get this burden, right. I get this, and companies then run away, they don't want burdens, you know? But now it's about bundling opportunities, and I, all the people I talk to here, they're here to find what is my way into to this. I want to get into the heart of it. So if in a worst case the, the, this uh, event ended without any kind of deal, do you still think a lot of will have changed because uh, the, we will have been on a path of business and civil society and in some oh, governments well, as well? I'm 100% convinced that we will come to a tipping point relatively soon where <coughs> renewables are less expensive than fossil fuels. It's very close. My hope is that this uh, today or this agreement that we hopefully have will be the push that gets us there quicker. But I would say as a company, even if this breaks down, I would move in this direction because this tipping point is going to come and and, and everybody should take it into account. Because basically it's obvious, if you do renewables, your fuel is for free. If you want to keep just sourcing fuels, and those technology has not really developed the the recent years, you're gonna you're gonna pay more in the end. So yeah. I would definitely go this way. But for me, this is important for the world because if we fail this time, I see that it's going to be G20, G2 deciding everything, and and the UN system really in a deep deep pr- trouble. So there's a lot at stake right now. So obviously there's been no shortage of policy action or talk about policy action rather since we've been on the ground. But one of the other things that really struck me is how much of the conversation has revolved around finance. And coming into this, we knew that one of the big perennial sticking points has been how you divvy up the bill for climate mitigation between developed and developing countries. Um, So that's continued to be a huge area of focus. And that's one of the big uh, sort of uh, ten- tensions and suspense uh, aspects here is particularly uh, uh, Pr- Prime Minister Modi of India, uh, you know, who's been very adamant about that um, 
that the Western and developed country governments pay what he calls our reparations, which is a bit of a loaded word, it's particularly in America, where we you know, look at reparations around slavery and other kinds of things. But that, in other words, that the developed countries p put up billions of dollars to pay for the damage that and, and, and put up money that allows the developing countries like India to get technologies, build out the, the, the clean, uh, low-carbon technologies they need. Uh, he wants uh, IP, the intellectual property, for free. And, and so he's got some demands, and one of the tension points here is how hard a line is he going to draw? One of the quirks, I guess, about the UN process is that any one country can scuttle the whole deal. I mean, a little country, big country, and in India, of course, is a, is a very big country and the, the, one of the top emitters. And so it's, its role in this is going to be crucial. Yeah, and India and China have really been two of the focal points since we've been here. And I did hear a stat yesterday that 250 million people in India still don't have electricity, which is almost the entire population of the U.S. But at the same time, they do have one of the fastest developing economies. So they're sort of like an interesting edge case. Like, should they be treated as a small developing country or should they be paying in as much as some of these bigger companies that are more er, countries that are more industrialized? But to that end, on the company side... I think, Joel, carbon pricing has been at the top of the agenda at almost every event. Yeah, I mean, and that's been a, a different, uh, interesting and new development this year. Um, you know, the, putting a price on carbon has always been sort of one of those things that's out there. Uh, and so, and since the last major COP, so many companies and a number of countries and some states and, and other entities actually have placed uh, a price on carbon that they're using internally. We've written about this a number of times on Green Biz. And, and that conversation is, will there be a carbon price uh, as part of the deal? Probably not from, from uh, what has been said. It's not really part of the conversation. But uh, at the same time, how can you have a meaningful uh, result if there is no value, no economic value that's widely recognized uh, for emitting uh, carbon dioxide and greenhouse gases. And so that's another part of the uh, negotiation and, and part of this whole process that uh, that we're going to see evolving, not just in the deal, but what comes out afterwards. And I want to just emphasize that last point is that one of the sort of pat phrases you we hear, and we heard this before we got here, but it's the road through Paris, that Paris is is not uh, the, really the end of the line at all. It's just a way station uh, uh, on the way towards towards developing all that needs to be developed at the company level and at the country level and at the city level. And, and so a lot of this is going to evolve after everybody goes back home. Yeah, and I have to say, when I first started hearing that term, like more than a month before the event, I was wondering if it was a little bit of a cop out, maybe in some ways, to be talking about the road through Paris before we even had a deal in place. But one of the things that's made me think that maybe carries more water is um, how much the people here uh, that deal in this world of carbon markets have been telling us that what they're looking for from this agreement potentially is a long term market signal that it's okay. Like, like the green light essentially to go ahead and double down on those investments in clean energy from there maybe reevaluating how we price carbon and that obviously brings into bigger issues that have been notably uh, off the table I think um, in the official quarters around fossil fuel subsidies and all these thorny complexities yeah and the whole idea of, of carbon uh, excuse me of market pricing I think is significant too because it really brings up the role of the private sector 
at COP more than ever before. That that uh, uh, as uh, Peter Bakker, who uh, is the uh, uh, CEO of the World Business Council for Sustainable Development, put it, he said, um, you know, business isn't at the table at COP, but it's at the next table. It's just a little bit <laughs> the over kids the kids' table, perhaps. Um, and But it's closer than ever before. But the conversation, again, around not just carbon pricing and building renewables markets and, you know, bringing in new battery storage and electric vehicles um, and, um, and, and technology in general and the role of the agricultural supply chain and water pricing and the business of oceans in terms of uh, fisheries and, and, and the economic value of all of this. Uh, it's just been much par- more uh, realistic uh, part of the conversation that this, clearly this is about business and money, that the role of that is, is critical here. Uh, switching gears a little bit, one of the other things that struck me here, and, and I think this all goes into the category of realist, being realistic here at, at this event more so than a lot of others, is is the the sad uh, but realistic view that we're going to lose some islands. You know, mm-hmm. we're going to lose some uh, coastal property, and people are going to die. You know, the, people are talking in those terms much more openly uh, because I think that the realization that we're, you know, this this has moved uh, more severely, more quickly than than uh, maybe people knew or didn't. But the, the reality is, is that things are happening now. And so the conversation uh, that's also new here is about adaptation, which had been taboo for a long time. People didn't say, well, we, we have to mitigate. Uh, we don't want to talk about, we don't want to give in to the fact that the climate's going to change and we have to adapt. And so we've been hearing a lot more about adaptation. What does that look like? What's the business of adaptation? What, what are the technologies we need? So it's been a really interesting conversation overall. And the role of business uh, is, is really much more a part of it. Yeah, I think that's a hugely important point, and we've all been reminded of it in a very real way. India has been undergoing huge flooding while we've been here. Hundreds of people have died, so I think uh, people are really coming to terms, like you're saying, with some of the dire stakes that are here now. They're not going to wait until the next bureaucratic meeting. Um, But one other thing that I do think is important um, to just circle the wagons on is this issue of carbon pricing and what we can really expect on the financial side coming out of this. And one person we spoke to was Anthony Hobley, who is the CEO of Carbon Tracker, interesting think tank that does a lot of work on stranded assets and the financial upshot of climate change. And here's what he had to say about the financial landscape. Risk is an important consideration when you decide to invest. And generally how you deal with risk if you, if you decide to go ahead is you price it in to the cost of capital. And um, the problem is that this risk is not really fully understood, so it's mm-hmm. not being priced in. So many fossil fuel projects are benefiting from a lower cost of capital. They're getting money far too cheaply, and they shouldn't be. So one, part of our mission is to get the financial markets to see that risk, price it in, and ensure the cost of capital for fossil fuels goes up, or even better, they see the risks as far too high. They do not give them or allow them the capital to put into these projects that would take us above two degrees. Um, and we're getting, I think, more and more traction. If you think about the Paris summit, I think what's, you know, there's many unique things, many stars are aligning, I think, to, to give us a, se- a successful outcome. One thing that struck me is the fact that the governor of one of the major central banks came to Paris, came to a climate summit and made a big announcement. I don't think the governor of a major central bank has ever done that before. That, that's an important signal. And that's, 
you know, the, the fact that Mark Carney, in both his capacity as governor of the Bank of England, but also chair of the Financial Stability Board, is talking about this issue and the fact that it is a risk and that we need to understand it. And, we, and as you asked, we need disclosure. Right. Um, it is, I think, one of the key tipping points with regards to the financial markets engagement in this issue. Mm -hmm. And in terms of what is going on on the ground in Paris right now, we've heard a lot of talk at the side events more in the business sphere about carbon pricing yes. and, you know, sort of taking these externalities into account. Um, are you surprised that we're not hearing more about this from the official realm or where does this conversation go from here? <laughs> um, I think what's actually been really smart about the preparations for Paris is the recognition of the limitations of international agreements and public law, public mm -hmm. law. Generally, public international law, public international law is about recognizing what countries are doing anyway. So they've been, you know, Christiana and, and the French have been very smart, I think, in getting the countries to come up with their own commitments and put those on the table in the run-up to Paris. So Paris will be more about providing a framework around what the countries are prepared to do anyway. Mm -hmm. um, that's incredibly um, important. And also, I think the recognition that you cannot impose a carbon price in some sort of top-down way by waving a sort of magic international wand. Right. You need to develop that bottom up and then link it. But I think the other key difference, if we think back six years to Copenhagen mm -hmm. and the perception of Copenhagen as, as a failure, um, the big difference over the last six years is the clean technology has matured dramatically and the costs of that clean technology have dropped dramatically. What I think Carbon Tracker's financial analysis tells us is we're already in that low carbon technology driven transition. The, the big unknown is will it happen quickly enough right. to keep us below two degrees? And I think that's where Paris and a carbon price can play an incredibly important part in providing the clear signal to drive that technology transition quickly enough to keep us below the two degrees pathway. Well, we've, we've done a lot of interviews and we've had the chance to talk to or hear from uh, a number of people, uh, celebs and non-celebs, talking more about action and how do you activate the public, how do you activate the business sector. Um, and uh, we heard at the World Business Council for Sustainable Development event on Monday, uh, the, one of the uh, keynoters was uh, Al Gore. Um, and he, Al gave a 20-25-minute uh, speech. Uh, he called me out. He uh, gave me props mm -hmm. from the stage. I was very happy to hear that. Thank you very much, um, Mr. Vice President. Um, it was a classic, you know, Gore speech in a lot of ways, which is to say it was factual and scientific and a kind of a downer. But mm -hmm. towards the end, he really uh, sort of changed tone. Yeah, he got he was addressing a business audience. This was at the World Business Council for Sustainable Development event. So lots of CEOs in the audience. Um, so yeah, you like you were saying, sort of this measured tone throughout, sort of laying out the logical case. Um, but then I mean, there was a noticeable change in the tone of his voice, and uh, he started talking louder and clearer. And he was talking about sort of the urgency. He's obviously been thinking about this stuff for a long time. So I think he's one of the examples of people really buying into COP21 as an inflection point. Yeah. And you, 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 we got to see something we don't normally see, which is the more emotional side of Al Gore. Here's a taste. There are those who are cynical about this entire process. There have been many such meetings. This one is different. It really is different. But for those who don't understand why it's different, they are tempted to say, oh, I've seen all this and heard all this before. Nothing's going to happen. Please remember that this is not the first moral cause that humanity has had to deal with. If you look back at the movement to abolish slavery, 
to give women the right to vote and then progressively to recognize the obvious demand, the obvious justice in having women be equal partners in all of society. The, the movement against apartheid, where businesses played a key role. Uh, the, the civil rights movement in my country and in many other places. The movement to remove discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation, still going on, but a, a struggle that is being won. Every single one of these great moral causes has confronted a series of no's, no, 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 but eventually, when the essence of that moral cause was refined into a simple choice between what is right and what is wrong, the outcome became foreordained because of who we are as human beings. 99% of us. That is where we are now on the climate crisis. We know it's wrong to condemn future generations to a life of progressive degradation in their circumstances, diminishing their hopes for the future, telling them they have to look at their children and say, because of what wasn't done in a prior time, we have this long march toward a, a horrible set of circumstances. In our, that's wrong. The right choice is to rise up to this challenge and say, yes, we know that we have to, we know we can, and we have to summon the will to succeed. Business is going to make all the difference. You've had encouragement from your customers and consumers, a growing percentage of whom are in the millennial generation who care about this. They want to do business with companies that share their values. And as you build your brand loyalty among this key group, you are wise to say, we are with you, we are with the future, we care about uh, the, the families and the communities and the regions where we are doing business. And so the answer to that first question, must we change, is clearly yes, we have to change. We understand that it is challenging. But the second question is equally important. Can we change? Because if we have to change, but we don't have the ability to change, then I don't want to hear any more about it because I'm just going to live in a constant state of anxiety and stress. And when people believed that it wasn't practically possible to bring about a large-scale decarbonization of the world's economy, then they shut their minds, some of them, to even talking about the climate crisis. But now, because of business and the developers of technology, the researchers and developers and investors paying attention uh, to this entire challenge, we have seen just in the last few years a dramatic change in the availability of competitively priced sources of renewable energy and new business models in agriculture and forestry and, and uh, fisheries that dramatically reduce emissions and dramatically reduce the impact on, on the climate. If you look at the new electricity generation that is being built around the world today, well, let me take my country as an example. What percentage of the new electricity generation built in the U.S. this year would you think comes from solar and wind? 5%, 10%, 20%? 
70%. And the number is increasing month by month. Last month, it was 90%. The investments, the new investments in burning coal for electricity, even burning gas for electricity, are going down and down because uh, solar electricity, photovoltaics particularly, uh, and, and wind onshore at first and now offshore, they are now competitive in many more regions of the world, the majority of the regions now. The answer to that second question, can we change, is now because of business leadership, clearly understood to be yes, we can change. So the third and final question is, will we change? Will we change? That's what the conference underway in Paris is all about. And the political will to make the changes that are necessary can be strengthened by one important factor, and that is the voice of the business community. Because political leaders, especially when they are asked to make decisions that they're told will have an impact on the economy and on business, are keen to hear from men and women who are leaders in business. They know you have the practical experience and that you are reporting to them what the real world circumstances are. So when this group speaks up forcefully directly to the national delegations, but through the media as well, to say we in the business community are not only ready to go, we are asking you to move faster and farther because the future is important to us. So what you're doing in this group is extremely important, not only for your employees and your customers and your many stakeholders, it is also important to the entire world as the world tries to chart a course for the future. And then uh, sort of switching gears, but in the same vein as uh, Adrian Grenier, who uh, is an actor, if you've ever seen the uh, series Entourage on HBO, which is about a, a movie star and his buddies from Queens who are uh, uh, sort of have hijinks ensue, as they say in Hollywood. Uh, he's a uh, big environmentalist, and he's got uh, particularly... Uh, involved with a number of causes. He has a website called Shift, S-H-F-T, which is sort of a lifestyle, trying to engage uh, millennials and others um, uh, on uh, sustainability in all of its many forms. And he's uh, he is, uh, concerned about oceans. And I talked with him uh, about, uh, you know, what he's learned about engaging uh, uh, people on this. So the, the big challenge of how do you bring more people into the conversation and really get them to care beyond sort of the superficial nice things to do. There are a lot of nightmares told in, in the media sphere uh, and, and, and a lot of times the, 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 the fear-mongering sells and it's distracting I think because I believe that there are a lot more uh, people doing good out there uh, and, and they're not necessarily making the headlines and so my job is to try and tell their stories and help to encourage other people to get excited because when people are fearful uh, they become apathetic, they shut down and they they become inactive. We need people to get excited and get active and start participating. I think it's just a matter of tapping into people's dreams and their and, and uh, you know their imaginations. If, if we can't imagine a better world we can't create it 
and so first, firstly, we just have to get people excited about what's possible. You know, look, look into the future and imagine a better world and then go out and, and do the work to build it. Yeah, so I think the takeaway there is definitely maybe not always being so negative around climate messaging, which we've certainly heard before, um, but good stuff. And let's go more in depth now. So that's uh, music is something that I recorded in the subway station, the metro station, sort of near the Notre Dame. I just uh, was coming out of uh, uh, coming out, and there was this band underground you know, playing some music, and I just thought I'd get a little of that. And I think what's it, you know, while we're talking about Paris, uh, uh, I know a lot of people wondered, well, what's the mood like, security, and did you, you know, what was tight? And it, what was interesting. Is that, is that in Paris itself, Le Bourget is about, I don't know, five or ten kilometers outside, close to Charles de Gaulle Airport. But within Paris, you know, it, unless you go to a hotel, we had to, we got uh, frisked and scanned every time we went into the Marriott where we've been staying all week um, and, and a few other venues. But beyond that, it didn't really see a big police presence. Um, and I was, at, you know, up at restaurants and neighborhoods at, at, at private dinners and other events. And it just felt so normal. It just felt like Paris. I've been here a half dozen times, and I didn't really get a sense that there had been a, a terrorist attack just uh, four weeks ago uh, today, in fact, and, uh, uh, and the fact that um, this is a city that didn't really, uh, that bounced right back. Yeah, I, I'll say it's interesting because when I first I came in on a late flight last weekend and I was greeted at the airport with lots of guys and fatigues with guns. So I was like, OK, what am I sort of getting myself into? Um, and at Le Bourget, I, I mean, there are definitely people patrolling the metro again with the gun sort of checking out the scene. But I would agree generally when you're going in the city, um, there's lots of cop signage everywhere. And I think uh, Pete, our, your co-founder for Greenbiz, um, really summed it up when he said Cop 21 has sort of served as like a point of pride in a way to to bring people together even though there have been uh, some of the protests haven't come forward there have been there has been some dissent but um, people generally are sort of using cop as, as a poignant moment to sort of come back together which I think has been um, cool to see um, but I will also say in the process of running around uh, on the metro a lot and on the, the various trains and buses out to Le Bourget, uh, we ran into a lot of familiar faces. And one of those is Bill Weil from Facebook. Yeah, Bill has been a good friend of ours at Greenbiz. He's been on stage at our conferences. He's come and just uh, attended our events. And we're, we and he's been working uh, for, before Facebook at Google and really is one of the pioneers in uh, corporate renewable energy procurement and thinking about how do you scale and is he, it was the energy czar at Google and now he's the the sustainability guru at uh, at Facebook um, and uh, we met up with him uh, in his uh, in the Facebook booth uh, out at Le Bourget to talk a little bit about what's the role of COP and the negotiations in uh, enabling companies like Facebook, but companies of all sorts, to much more uh, significantly and radically scale up their purchases of renewable energy. Here's what he had to say. 
Two years ago, or you know, certainly three years ago, there, every year there were one to 200 megawatts of contracts being inked around uh, buying commitments to buy renewable energy. Um, starting about two years ago, that started to change, and it went up to several hundred megawatts. And last year, I think it was a megawatt or a megawatt and a half. This year, we're going to be at two and a half or three. Gigawatts. So, gigawatts, sorry, yes, yeah, sorry. Yeah. Um, the units do matter. Yeah. Um, and so the momentum, I mean, it's just, it's, it's ramping incredibly fast. More companies are doing it. It's still not a huge number of companies signing contracts, but I think there are probably a dozen or maybe even two dozen this year. Um, there are a few like Google that are, Google just announced, I think, an 800 or 900 megawatt commitment, um, which is a big chunk of what we're going to have this year. Um, but there, there are a bunch of the rest of us that aren't quite at Google scale yet, but that are doing a couple hundred megawatts at, at a time. Um, and I think the, the momentum there is growing incredibly fast, partly because costs have come down, partly because of efforts like the, the broad coalition that we've been part of, of pulling together of now 60 or 80 companies um, working together to teach each other how to do these things, because these contracts aren't simple, um, and to try to change policies so we actually have options uh, to actually buy clean energy in places where today there are no options. Well, speaking of policy, uh, what are you hoping for at COP from the, in the negotiations that would facilitate this even faster uptake of renewables? You know, I'm not sure actually that, that in the short term that, that whatever that is agreed to here will change that. It's happening, right? There is momentum. Um, companies are getting on board and basically saying, look, we're going to go do this stuff. Policy can make it easier. Policy can certainly make it cheaper because I think that while wind and solar have come down a lot in, in price, um, there are places where they're still not quite cost competitive and I think we need policies to help um, get them over that hump a little bit more. Yeah. Um, but I think what we need as a society is for countries to agree that we're going to move and we're going to start to move quickly and that we're going to reevaluate where we are every few years and then you know my guess is we'll need to move faster but you know hey if we get surprised and we don't need to move as fast because things are going better than we thought then maybe we things slow down yeah. but I, I think that what we need is some real agreement that then countries will go put policies in place that will provide more certainty yeah always great to talk to bill he has, he has a lot of thoughts on the subject of renewables and i i will say i think he touches on a tone that you started to see even in some of the mainstream media coverage coming out of cop and that's this concept of businesses leapfrogging governments on climate action specifically when it comes to investment in clean energy and that's one of the things we had heard over and over again in the run-up to cop that maybe the most important important potential outcome from a climate agreement would be this market signal that it's time to really um, get past the, you know, sort of like, oh, I'm not so sure about renewable energy and unleash the floodgates into it, uh, scaling up that infrastructure and really making it happen. Yeah, and you bring remind me of something I've been, I've been meaning to talk to you about, and I'm actually going to write a piece about this for next week, that, you know, that the, the there's no controversy about climate. Now we're in a little bit of a bubble here, but it's a 40,000 person bubble. So it's a pretty big bubble from, from every country, almost 200 countries. So this is not like a, you know, a U.S. left coast or any kind of thing. And, and I, if I hadn't gotten a couple of press releases by, from the Heartland Institute about some of the counter programming that some conference that they had where they were trying to question the science, 
you would, the, the whole idea of climate deniers and climate skeptics would not have come up here. I mean, there were a few references to it by particularly non-Americans sort of poking at uh, America's obsession with the, the controversy of, of climate change. Um, and, and so what struck me about uh, the, the, the week we've just spent here is that is that uh, it's kind of a, uh, an island of sanity and 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 agreement and uh, a bit of an echo chamber, but it's an echo chamber of of, of good guys of, of you know companies and even the activists haven't been all that critical. Uh, uh, I mean, they've been critical, but it's more about the degree and not that this is a completely wrong direction. So it's really encouraging to you know get out of the U.S. bubble. You know where there's where climate change is a controversy to really have a thoughtful uh, discussion about all this. Yeah, one of the things that was really interesting to me actually was I heard an interview with Naomi Klein, obviously a really vocal uh, critic of the way corporations interact um, with natural disasters, this whole idea of disaster capitalism. Um, but even she was talking about some of these topics that you hear a lot about ironically at sustainable business conferences and a couple of the buzzwords in particular that I heard were sort of this concept of breaking out of silos what we talk about a lot of systems thinking and things like that but also looking at climate change as an economic opportunity not this huge threat that you can't overcome and you have to run away from uh, and I think the real point of discrepancy though is who benefits from a low carbon economy and one of the areas that activists have taken a strong exception to is the corporate influence at COP21 um, some of the sponsors being heavily vested in fossil fuels and some of the solutions that are being elevated at sanctioned events are much more corporate in nature whereas you have um, the activist side some NGOs also that are much more in favor, favor of ground-up solutions like agroecology, um, some of the more local economy solutions. So that's a, a point that is not going to be resolved in two weeks in Paris, um, but interesting nonetheless. Yeah, but that, that's a conversation that's been going on for decades in terms of, you know, what what how good does big business have to be uh, to be considered as good? And what's the, you know, local business versus, you know, the Walmart versus Small Mart? And uh, anyway, there's, there's a lot of conversations here that it really does uh, uh, it represents a microcosm of the bigger environmental movement, but it is nice to see uh, someone like Naomi Klein, you know, talking about the role of business a little bit with a little bit more hope, hope, and echoing some of the the uh, the kinds of t- things we talk about at our conferences, like Verge. I mean, talk about a change of climate. So here we are, the four of us together, Shauna Rappaport, Pete May, Lauren Hepler, and me, together the first time all week. We've all been running around. We're in a place called The Place to Be, which is sort of a hub for uh, media, kind of alternative media, and uh, to, to come and, and have some programming and have a, a workspace. And God, what, I just wanted to see what you guys are up to, because I haven't seen you. So Pete, I mean, first of all, what have you been doing all week? 
Uh, well, I've been out and about. Um, there's one of the things that struck me is there's just so much activity um, here, and I've been at different business conferences um, in the city, mainly in the city, um, which has been really fascinating to see that. And we saw John Kerry this morning, Al Gore yesterday. Um, so uh, doing all kinds of stuff. And thank you, Joel. I also got to go to a, a big concert, a U2 concert, when I got here. Sunday night, so that was that was really fun. Um, so I've been, I guess, two things: business community, and also today through a part, French partner, we have Greenflex. I was able to do a panel in the Grand Palais. The Grand Palais is this amazing old Beaux Arts building um, off of the Champs Elysees that um, is where, which is open to the public. So they have exhibits there, and I was part of this French company Greenflex doing a panel on the role of technology uh, around climate, technology from Silicon Valley, technology in France. So that was kind of fun. So this is kind of old home week for you. You uh, lived in Geneva years ago. You speak fluent French. You know a lot of the French companies, uh, and you've done done business in Paris. What's it like? Yeah. Oh, it's fantastic. And today today was also, I don't know if you guys got outside much, but the sun came out today, and I was, well, I mean, I don't, mean, I don't want to get too, you know, sappy as a tourist, but I was sun came out. I was looking at the, the, the walking down the Champs-Élysées. Um, I felt like it was like in a Joni Mitchell song or something. <laughs> it was it was fantastic and, and popping, but not from cafe to cafe, but from cop conference to conference. Yeah. So that was um, that was really fun. I, I loved it. It's it's kind of exhausting. There's so much going on here. And also there's so many. It's, it's a great confluence of, you know, civil society, as they say, um, journalists, NGOs, businesses, it's a great, great mix. But you you know a lot of these French people, and you've been talking in French to them, and, you know, yeah. what, what's the read on on how are they feeling about all these people coming to their their country, their city, yeah. and, I mean, is it is it special? What is going on? So it's very special. I mean, first of all, a word I'd use is poignancy. I mean, remember, this is, you know, it's right after their 9-11, basically. So um, I think it's, this is a point of, uh, COP is a point of particular pride from them. And, uh, and you see that, the emotion of people I'm dealing with. And they, tremendous pride, too, in making sure something happens here. First of all, I second the cop fatigue. I hear you on that one. Uh, but I am curious in terms of, Shauna, what you've been working on. I've seen some awesome pictures, installation at the Eiffel Tower. I know you've been to some really cool concerts. What were, like, two or three top highlights of the week? Yeah, well, it's been um, it's been a ton of fun, really full. I never take off my green biz hat. Been having a lot of fun doing some investigative journalism, but have been wearing primarily my hat as the uh, board chair of Project Drawdown. So been hanging more with the civil society crew. Um, gosh, Wednesday was definitely a highlight. We went to an event called Earth to Paris, which was or had 30 organizational partners: the United Nations Foundation, Good Magazine, you know, Facebook, National Geographic. And it was, um, in some ways, it actually reminded me of Verge in terms of the sheer diversity of the folks. Ban Ki-moon showed up. You know, Mayor Hidalgo opened up the morning. You had Tom Steyer and Jerry Brown in conversation. You know, inter intermixed with, you know, uh, biodiversity, uh, endangered species photographers from National Geographic, really painting a full, full picture from the ecological to the economic to the social aspects of what we're really here to do. So that was that was a huge highlight for me. Um, and and we spent a couple of nights as well at another event called Pathway to Paris, which was a really sweet weave 
weaving of kind of the NGO activist crowd, you know, organized by 350.org. You had Bill McKibben and Naomi Klein, uh, Vandana Shiva doing rallying cries, but intermixed with Tom York and Patti Smith and some really, really incredible, incredible acts. So we've been doing a lot of coalition building for Project Drawdown and really connecting with, with a really broad spectrum of people. I know one of the things, Shawnee, that you're working on is a story for Green Biz on sort of what's the, the NGO take on business and uh, what are the activists thinking about what companies are doing here? Can you give us a little preview of, of what you're finding? Yeah, it has been really interesting, and it's funny, Pete, to hear you talk about your participation in the uh, the Grand Palais, the Solutions Forum, the Corporate Solutions Forum. I went as well and used it as an opportunity to talk to some folks from from civil society, and you know, the perception it's it's been affirming to see that corporate leadership from the private sector on sustainability is cutting through. Um, you know, I was surprised by the number of activists on the ground who are aware of you know, um, emissions reductions efforts and the shift to renewable energy, but largely there is, there remains a real, um, a real concern that, that leadership from the private sector is being constrained to conversations and action around emissions reductions when really what we need to be talking about are much broader, is a, having a much broader conversation around how the private sector is engaging, especially in the context of COP21, with, with government. And so that's a little preview. Point well taken. It has been sort of carbon, 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 and emissions, yeah. emissions, emissions. Um, I'm curious, though, as somebody who lives and breathes this stuff with Verge, our Sustainability Mates Tech series and back at home. Um, I'm curious, what are sort of the things that you're hoping really maybe gain some momentum? You hope to really continue the conversations? Yeah, well, if I, if I understand that question correctly, you know, I think one of the most exciting things for, for me personally that I've been learning a lot about here as well is, is the importance of ecological solutions as a counterbalance to a lot of the technological solutions. I mean, when I've been talking a lot recently about how we need to really be pushing beyond decarbonization of our economy and, and really the recarbonization of our soils. And there is a place, there is a place for big ag, there is a place for technology solutions as a part of that. But, you know, photosynthesis is a big ally when it comes to getting carbon out of the atmosphere and back into our soils. And so I think the more we see the marriage of those two, um, the more comprehensive will our collective efforts be at really addressing the issues at hand. Pete, do you see in the, uh, the French uh, business community, do they have a, any sense of, of what their relationship is with their activist community? Is it different than it is in the States? Do you have much to say about that? I mean, have you been watching in that? Yeah, it, it is. It is uh, different, and you know, I know the look. There's different stripes of activists here. Um, I know at Grand Palais where I was on Monday, there was uh, there were activists that were extremely active there on Friday, and there was apparently people on up on poles, and the police were out. So it it is um, it is it is almost in certain areas. I think it's hand in hand. I think I think that is. That's a great driver for European companies, too, because they know that they can't get by just on platitudes about around sustainability. They really have to push for that. Um, Shauna, that was a great um, point on the ecological side plus the technological side. Being the business guy in the company, let me also, the, the thing that I've been hearing that I think is is particularly um, thorny and um, is I know they're working on is 
what is the, what's the whole financial side? What's, you know, how do you, how do you subsidize this? What's, what is, um, how do you think you engage uh, for technology transfer, um, corporations and, uh, developed countries with the developing world? It's, it's out of my, I'm out of my league on that, but it's fascinating discussion. Yeah. I would just add, you know, back to the the full spectrum of efforts and demonstrations that we've been seeing beyond folks showing up to activists showing up to places like the Grand Palais and the corporate solutions forums a little bit more under the radar, but if you look at bus stops and other advertisement spaces, there was a huge campaign put on by an organization called Brandivism, um, where they somehow got behind the glass and created, a, there were like 82 artists from across the country who created 600 different, um, basically fake corporate advertisements to really oh, yeah. bring attention to the fact that a lot of these companies, which are huge emitters, you know, huge polluters, companies that really aren't creating much social value, promoting themselves as part of the solution. They were real companies. The ads were for actual companies, VW, Exxon, and a bunch of others, and, and some that aren't even, you know, that controversial. But they put taglines on them as if, you know, you know, like uh, VW, we knew all along, or some things like that. They're, it was really quite clever. That's right. Well, guys, I mean, first of all, it's great to see you. I, we've all been running like crazy, and I'm, I'm glad we had a chance to catch up. Um, and, and have great trips back, and we'll see you in Monday in the office. It's Shana Rappaport, our Director of Engagement for Verge. Pete May, our free man in Paris, <laughs> here with uh, me and Lauren. We'll see you later. One of the personal highlights for me in what has been a really busy week was hearing Secretary of State John Kerry talk at the International New York Times event on Wednesday of this week. Um, and the focus of that conversation was about the nexus between climate change and national security, uh, which is a topic that we're just starting to really hear more about uh, and I think connect the dots. And one of the reasons we're starting to hear more about it is because you're having a concrete example of how this sort of thing can play out in Syria, um, where groups like the National Academies of Science have started to do the research um, that explicitly link extreme drought in the region to population migration and then these um, sort of unleashing of simmering social and political tensions, which as we know all know devolved into civil war, a refugee crisis, um, and unfortunately uh, an escalation in violent activity among terrorist groups. So it's really sort of, uh, it's a lot to get your head around, but I think it's interesting that it's being addressed head on in a forum like the UN Climate Talks. Yeah, I mean, this is uh, not a new conversation. I mean, the Department of Defense, the Pentagon, put out a report years ago talking about climate change as a threat multiplier, which is to say that a lot of the things that are happening in radicalization in certain countries and poverty and other things, that climate change exacerbates that and, and in some cases takes it beyond the tipping point. And yeah, the serious situation was that drought in the north led farmers to you know abandon their fields and move into the cities where there were no jobs, no jobs uh, it created. They had lots of time and opportunity and anger to start uh, uh, rallying against the government. 
and that led to the the factions and and the war the civil war and and uh and ultimately the migration and 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 you know some people are a lot of conversation here in paris is about that's a preview of what's to come that we're going to be seeing a lot more of that in africa uh in in other part in in asia uh, in India, that, that, that as uh, coastal area gets coastal areas get flooded and become uninhabitable, uh, as storms become more severe and, and tornadoes and and tsunamis and hurricanes and uh, and uh, just you know more and more weather and droughts and you know that, that there's uh, and what they're talking about in the Middle East in in the Emirates and in in terms of the temperature rise that little you know, 120 130 25, 130 degrees Fahrenheit will be the norm. This is becoming a very much a security issue. And a lot of people have known that, but the conversation is really picked up as, as John Kerry noted. Yeah. And I think it really dovetails with a conversation we've been tapped into for a while now around the issue of climate resilience and that sort of thinking ahead about being braced for some of these shocks, both the uh, extreme weather and sort of natural environment shocks, but also uh, some of those geopolitical factors that are maybe a little harder to wrangle. Um, and what the way Carrie framed it was potentially looking at energy as one of the key areas. We've also talked about this too um, but looking at things like renewables store it energy storage off-grid energy um, and again those are like so many of the solutions we've seen at cop things that are in desperate need of sort of more strategic thinking and more sound funding mechanisms um, but I think it, it's interesting to see that talked about on the global stage specifically in the context of national security and I think part of what's being understood is the role of technology in in mitigating this is what we talk about it distributed energy distributed a smaller scale localized agriculture and water filtration and, and distribution um, uh, more uh, resilient housing stock that is able to withstand uh, the kinds of shocks weather and, and other uh, other things and I think you know there is a role of technology here and, and and we've known that a long time but we've been hearing that more and more and the question is how does that technology become uh, both scale, get to scale in terms of, of the affordability of it, uh, just uh, even in the, in the developed world, but then how do you push it out to where it's likely needed most, which is the, the poorest countries and the, and the areas that are going to be uh, probably hardly, hardest hit by some of these shocks, um, and how do we make that technology? And this is where the conversation with India and other developing countries about uh, is it available and can are we giving it to them and do we owe it to them as, as part of the reparations as we were talking about before? Yeah, and to that end, the conversation we were referencing earlier about economic opportunity being part of this, uh, Kerry was also adamant in stressing that clean energy represents a lot of potential jobs, infrastructure, operations, maintenance, um, and to put a finer point on it, he said, you have energy independence and America all of a sudden becomes more secure. Increasingly, I find economic policy is foreign policy. So I think that really speaks to what um, the gist of what he was trying to get at. Yeah, and as you know, I just finished a book and uh, on this is coming out in, in the middle of 2016. But the, the, the formulation we talk about is prosperity, security, and sustainability and how those three pieces fit together. So we're going to be talking a lot more about that.
Well, that's it for us from Paris. Uh, I'm also curious to hear what has been going on back at home. Managing editor Elsa Wenzel has been more than busy keeping up with both the action in Paris and everything that's been going on in the rest of the world. So Elsa, what's been happening? Hello from Oakland. Across so many time zones, we've published a lot on Green Biz About Cop this week. Some of us, not myself, were up in the middle of the night in California on Sunday bringing to you a live cast of a WBCSD council meeting in Paris. And you can still watch the archive, which stars Joel and leaders like Christiana Figueres and Unilever CEO Paul Pullman. We've also been producing videos from Paris, including Al Gore and movie star Adrian Grenier. Um, In terms of stories, Lauren wrote about Secretary of State John Kerry's speech, which was connecting the dots between national security and clean energy. She also updated us about science-based goals from IKEA, Sony, and others, and came up with five big questions to make or break the climate talks. We'll see later if those things actually made or broke the climate talks. Um, Fingers crossed. So um, carbon pricing is bound to be a big issue in the road beyond Paris. So Keith Larson, our former intern, dove into some recent reports about carbon pricing, and those should hopefully help your company moving forward. Um, Our senior writer, Mike Howard, took a closer look at actions by cities. He also explained updates to nine focus areas for businesses, including energy, chemicals, and agriculture, as part of the Low Carbon Technology Partnerships, a public-private initiative. Um, I'm still updating my own piece on new COP21 commitments, which have slowed to a trickle but not stopped yet. I also rounded up some intriguing global maps of deforestation, air pollution, food insecurity, and more. And of course, senior writer Barbara Grady did some great stories um, from Oakland as well. Barbara, what were you working on? Well, one thing I looked at was financing the COP21 country pledges, particularly those from developing countries. So at every climate meeting, finance, particularly that issue of developing countries building out their renewable energy and low carbon industries, is like a big contentious issue that leads to fights. And five years ago, in fact, the climate talks in Copenhagen fell in part because of that issue. So this time around in Paris, uh, governments are still debating about the amount rich countries will pay to help poor countries develop low-carbon economies and clean energy and so on. But the difference is, this time there's a lot of private money in the picture. A bunch of big banks and investment institutions and also billionaires and even some corporations have all pledged hundreds of billions of dollars towards clean energy finance. This should kind of diffuse some of that issue and not make it so contentious, but we have yet to see because the meeting isn't over yet. So the other story that uh, my colleague Heather Clancy and I worked on was a roundup of all the commitments coming from the various industries. During this week and last, there's been a deluge of new corporate actions and industry group commitments, everything from agriculture giant Monsanto pledging to pour R&D money into making products such as pesticides that are carbon negative to um, the transportation industry making a bunch of new pledges. One thing was that 65 countries signed on to something called the Global Fuel Economy Initiative, agreeing to double the fuel efficiency of 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 government fleets. And there's been a big push about uh, electric cars, a commitment to boost the percentage of cars on the road that are electric. 
And then there's pledges out of the apparel industry and the consumer goods industry to avoid the use of palm oil that comes from areas that are being deforested. Pretty much every industry you can think of has stepped forth with something, except perhaps the oil industry. Thanks, Barbara. So for the week ahead, we are going to shake off everything that just happened at COP and try to take a look in the rearview mirror and say, what just happened? Not only that, what is going to happen on the road through and from Paris. So um, I know that Joel is looking at a tale of two summits, for example. So watch for that on Monday. Um, We're also going to bring you some views from execs who were in Paris and see what they say about their own experiences and their hopes and disappointments and moving forward. Thanks, Elsa. Well, that's uh, this week's edition of 350. Uh, As always, we've uh, posted the links uh, to some of the stories and video clips and other things we've been talking about. Go to greenbiz.com slash 350. Uh, Also, keep those cards and letters coming. Uh, We always love to hear your suggestions and ideas. Send it to 350 at greenbiz.com. And as always, for the latest news uh, and insights on sustainable business, go to greenbiz.com and subscribe to our daily newsletter called Green Buzz. Uh, Lauren, you're going to be traveling about Europe for the next week, so I'll be back home in Oakland uh, with next week's edition of 350. Uh, thanks, as always, to the folks back home, particularly Soraya Malconian, who uh, always makes this sound so good. From all of us at GreenBiz Group, uh, particularly Lauren Hepler and me here in Paris, thanks for listening. Until next time, have a great day. Au revoir.